Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file and bonus episode in the murder of Modesto series, the alternate theories and why Scott Peterson could be innocent after all. A special Friday, the 13th release for our more hardcore listeners. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. I'd like to thank all of you for being here and helping us trying to find our daughter. And we'd just like to send a message out there that whoever has her, please, please, please let her go. Bring her back. We love her so much. We want her her back. Please let us have her back. We want her and our grandson home safely and immediately, so please bring her back to us. In the quaint Californian city of Modesto, where palm trees line the winding streets, Scott Lee Peterson and Lacey Peterson prepared for their last and final holiday as a couple without a child. Lacey was seven and a half months pregnant, and their son, Connor, was due on February 10th, in time for Mother's Day. On Christmas Eve, Lacey, radiant as ever, almost eight months pregnant and on the cusp of motherhood, mysteriously vanished into thin air. Lacey had been overjoyed in anticipation for her unborn son, Connor, to bless her perfect family. But as Christmas approached, something dark and ominous was playing out behind the scenes, shrouded in a cloak of darkness, hidden behind lies and half-truths. Her husband, Scott Peterson, was having an affair with the Fresno masseuse named Amber Fry, a woman bearing no resemblance to her. Lacey's disappearance through the small town of Modesto into the national spotlight and immediately dampened the festive Christmas season with family, friends, and strangers all coming together to help find the missing young soon-to-be mother. Today is going to be about finding Lacey. It's going to be a volunteer search effort. We're hoping that volunteers from Southern California will come out and at least pick up five or six flyers. 
we're successful in getting three or 400 volunteers out today, we'll be very successful in getting out a couple thousand flyers. We're asking people in the Southland to post them during in high traffic areas, malls, uh, on, on you know poles in, uh, in high traffic areas. That's really important today. The family is going to keep the focus on Lacey. They're not going to be conducting media interviews today. The house on Covina Avenue, once brimming with holiday cheer, a Christmas tree sitting in the living room with unopened presents underneath, turned into the epicenter of a mystery that would captivate and horrify a nation. With every tick of the clock, the heartbeat of hope grew fainter. As the search intensified and detectives poured over what little evidence remained of Lacey's disappearance, Scott Peterson, her husband, went from person of interest to main suspect. Well, they are covering the story, so we have to take the story. I appreciate you covering the story. Have you taken a polygraph test? Are you willing to take a polygraph test? Scott, what about the, what about the allegations of a girlfriend? Have you been fully cooperating with Watch the Scott, why don't you answer some questions? Scott, just a moment. Are you asking questions? Scott, how are you but did the Modesto detectives rush to judgment? Did they zero in on Scott due to his inability to show any semblance of emotion for his missing bride and unborn son? As Scott began drowning in an ocean of lies, odd behavior, and a mistress that began working with the police to ensnare the unsuspecting and often aloof Scott, he quickly became a prime suspect for the Modesto detectives investigating the disappearance. Scott's parents visiting their son behind bars and complaints now from his former attorney that Modesto police were targeting Scott all along. It was obvious. How? Um, just in how they were dealing with me, how they were dealing with Scott, how they were in insisting on trying to talk to Scott even though they knew that he had an attorney and I was the attorney and trying to do an end run around me. Uh, all those were telltale signs that they were trying to put a bullseye on his chest and that their investigation was going to be focused at making a case against him. Hmm. And that called for us to do our own investigation. When the remains of Lacey and Connor washed ashore at the very location Scott had used as an alibi, he was quickly apprehended and arrested. Earlier this week, East Bay Park authorities uh, discovered two bodies. There is no question in our minds that the unidentified female is Lacey Peterson. The unidentified fetus is the biological child of Lacey and Scott Peterson. But what other sinister activities were happening in Modesto? Did the detectives fail to keep an open mind as they investigated? Is it possible that tunnel vision and a dogged focus on Scott placed blinders on the detectives, not allowing them to see other potential threats in the small town of Modesto that could have abducted and murdered Lacey? We've discussed the Scott Peterson trial in detail. Scott was tried and quickly found guilty of first-degree murder of Lacey Peterson and second-degree murder of baby Connor. 
He was sentenced to death by lethal injection, but through appeals, he was able to reduce his sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The prosecution had done a solid job of painting an image of Scott Peterson as an unhappy husband who had decided to kill his wife rather than to suffer through a divorce that both his family and friends would disapprove of. He had planned on a happier future with his mistress, Amber Fry, who was completely unaware of his marital status. Unfortunately, the ever-clever Scott told detectives that he had gone fishing on Christmas Eve at the Berkeley Marina, and when his wife and son turned up in the San Francisco Bay, no one thought it was a coincidence. To the prosecution, Scott Peterson was not the bereaved husband, but a mastermind, an orchestrator of deception. With every piece of evidence presented, they sought to depict a chilling narrative, that of a man eager to cast away the chains of impending fatherhood, craving the intoxicating allure of freedom and other romantic liaisons. The boat, the fishing trip on Christmas Eve, the peculiar purchase of concrete for a homemade anchor, were these tools and alibis of a premeditated plot? The inconsistent stories, the clandestine affair, every revelation seemed to tighten the noose around Scott's fate. Yet, as the story unraveled, one couldn't help but wonder, was this narrative a true reflection of reality, or were the threads of this tale woven so tightly that they concealed the truths and other possibilities? When Garegos, the high-profile Los Angeles attorney who took charge of Scott's defense, made his opening remarks, he told the jury he was determined to prove that Scott had been judged by the media and presumed guilty, but that evidence he would present would prove that Scott was not responsible for Lacey's death. The jury would wait for Garegos to make his move and follow through on his promise. But as the case wound down towards closing statements, the defense fell short of its promise and the jury was left holding its breath in anticipation. Today, we look at those alternate theories and discuss whether they are viable and could have proven Scott innocent then or now. We don't suggest you hold your breath. The house straight across the street from Scott and Lacey was burglarized, and their last name was Medina. They'd left home Christmas Eve morning, December 24th, at about 10.30 in the morning. They came back home on December 26th at about 4.15 in the afternoon. When they arrived back home in Modesto, they knew something was going on. There were national media trucks downtown by the police station because Lacey had been reported missing. Upon entering their home, they immediately realized their house had been burglarized. The side door had been kicked in. We thought, you know, maybe it had some connection to what happened to Lacey. And, you know, all of us were very hopeful it might give us some leads or some indication as to what happened. I think about a week or so went by and the police announced that they caught the two men who burglarized the home. Uh, but that those two men burglarized the home on the 26th. And as a family, we just kind of believed that they'd done their due diligence in investigating that burglary. But, you know, you fast forward to 15 years later, and the evidence shows that the burglary actually happened on December 24th, on the day that Lacey went missing. But the judge circled back to that time that the next-door neighbor put the dog back of 1018 and said, whatever happened to Lacey happened before 1018, they didn't go on vacation until 10.30, so the burglary is completely unrelated to Lacey's disappearance. Um, therefore, we are sentencing Scott to death and sending him to San Quentin. The Medina Burglary Theory Between December 24th, the day that Lacey Peterson went missing, and December 26th, 
the day that the media began accumulating and camping around the front of Scott's Covina Avenue home, there was a burglary at Rudy and Susan Medina's home. The Medinas had left town for the holidays, leaving early on December 24th around 9 a.m. and arrived back home around 10 p.m. on December 26th. Upon finding their home burglarized, they ran outside where the police were helping maintain security of Scott's media inundated home and yelled, we've been robbed. The Medina burglary theory is the ultimate what-if scenario and one that Scott Peterson himself has routinely referenced as a primary alternate theory to Lacey's disappearance. In this theory, Lacey would have had to leave her home around 10.08 a.m. and 10.18 a.m. on the morning of December 24th, giving her a 10-minute window to be abducted. This is the validated time that we know Scott left his residence where his cell phone pinged the tower in his neighborhood and the time when... Karen Servas had seen Mackenzie, the Peterson dog, and placed the dog in the backyard with his leash still on. Keep in mind, Scott and Lacey lived on a dead-end street, so Scott would have potentially passed the burglars as he went to work and as they headed to the Medina home. The burglars could not have been there when Scott left between 9.48 a.m., the time that he recalled Martha Stewart referencing the meringue cookies on the show he stated he and Lacey were watching, and 10.08 a.m., the time that his cell phone pinged in the neighborhood as he drove away because he would have seen the burglars. This means that the burglars would have had to arrive at the Medina home after Scott left for his office at 10.08 a.m., broken into the home, stolen lawn and tools from the shed in the backyard, stolen jewelry, and removed an 800-pound safe with a dolly, placed the safe into a van, been engaged by Lacey, abducted Lacey, and then left the Medina residence by 10.18 a.m., the time that Karen Service was leaving and found Mackenzie roaming in the street. Karen would have also seen the burglars if they had not left the residence by 10.18 a.m. when she found Mackenzie. In contradiction of the above timeline, Diane Jackson, an elderly neighbor, called the police on December 27, 2002 at 6.30 p.m., three days after she witnessed a light-colored van at the Medina residence on December 24th at 11.40 a.m., with three dark-skinned males standing around loading a safe. She claims she initially mistook them for landscapers, but after hearing about Lacey and the burglary a few days later, it clicked that she had witnessed the crime. The three suspects stopped what they were doing when she passed by, seeing the rear door on the back of the light-colored van open. She would later say that the van could have been brown. She couldn't recall anything further, aligning with another alternate theory that we'll discuss, the brown van theory. When asked if she could identify any of the men she had seen that day, she said that she could not. The police eventually caught two of the burglars that had broken into the Medina residence when someone snitched on Stephen Todd, the main culprit, who erroneously said he had committed the burglary on December 27th. Todd stated that he had ridden his bicycle to the neighborhood around 3 a.m. looking for something to steal and had gotten into the backyard of the Medina residence by jumping their fence. He had stolen lawn equipment and power tools from their unlocked shed and left with those items. He then returned and kicked in the French doors in the back of the home and gained access to the home. He burglarized the home and used a dolly to move an 800-pound safe to the porch of the house. He then left and got Glenn Pierce, his inept sidekick, who then returned to the residence with a white sedan and assisted Todd in moving the safe by placing it in the front seat of the car. They took the safe to a location where they used tools to crack the safe open and remove the contents. Is it possible that Todd lied about the date of the burglary to remove suspicion from himself, and he actually had encountered Lacey on December 24th between 10.08 a.m. and 10.18 a.m., 
while trying to move the safe from the porch to the car? No. The Medinas were still home on December 24th until about 9.30 in the morning. He definitely could have jumped the fence immediately after that. He could have came back to the house between the 10-minute window that Lacey had to disappear. But Todd was a meth addict, and his version of events are highly probable and in alignment with his M.O. and his previous crimes. He had a lengthy record of burglarizing homes, no history of violence, no history of murder. Todd was quickly captured when someone snitched on him. Todd then himself snitched on his accomplice, Pierce. As a result, he got a reduced sentence, and instead of getting the 25 to life that he was facing as a three-strike felon, he only got eight years. Pierce had an otherwise clean record and only spent 180 days in county jail. It is very likely that if they would have done anything with Lacey, someone would have spoken. Additionally, a few days later, a woman connected to the pair returned all of the stolen jewelry from the Medina burglary, throwing it through the police department entryway and then running away. Two weeks after Lacey's disappearance, a police corrections lieutenant overheard a conversation between an inmate by the name of Ted, who called his brother and told his brother that Lacey had walked up on Todd committing the burglary and that he had made some types of verbal threats to her. When detectives interviewed Ted, Ted had denied knowing Todd and said the conversation had never occurred. Regardless, the conversation was hearsay and couldn't be used in court as neither of the individuals were witnesses of the crime. I really feel like the defense really tried to grasp at straws in all of this. And I mean, can you blame them if you're trying to defend somebody? Can you blame them for trying to come up with anything that they can to shake the case somehow, some way? No, I can't blame them. But truth of the matter is, is that nothing ever stuck to allow for them to be able to use anything. Their timelines didn't match up. Their information didn't match up. What people were saying they saw didn't match up. And think about it. If the defense had information to be able to put forward to make the prosecution's case weak, why wouldn't they? Right. At this point in time, they've got a world-class attorney. Gregos was not just any attorney. People often, when they look at this theory, they don't pay attention to the timeline. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, Diane Jackson saw a van on the 24th of December in front of the house with people loading a safe in there. It's very unlikely that if there were five burglars, I've heard the theory, there was five burglars, that all five of them wouldn't have been in jail. And... You're talking about meth addicts. You're not talking about an organized criminal enterprise who lives by a code of silence and is meticulous in how they execute. No, these guys got caught within weeks. And typically, that's not the case for burglaries. <laughs> Typical burglars get away with it because they don't leave a lot of evidence and they don't have a lot of talking. But this group, was they were leaking like a sieve. Right. Everyone was talking. And they wouldn't have even had the foresight to try to frame Scott by, oh, well, we heard his alibi. And so we're going to go, you know, we've we've done something with Lacey. And so now we're going to go dump her at the place where he's used it as his alibi. 
in order to abduct someone, there's a lot of planning that has to go into that. Right. Let's not even say there's a lot of planning. There's minimal planning that has to go into that. Here you have a guy who came to a house on a bicycle <laughs> and broke in. Right. This is a, a crime of opportunity. Right. Right. And you know it because first he steals the, the lawn equipment and the power tools and he leaves. And then he goes, man, let me, I wonder if I can get some more stuff. Let me go back. Then he breaks in and he steals some stuff. And he guess what? He finds a safe that weighs 800 pounds that he can't move by himself. And he moves it into a position where he can come back and get it. And he goes, well, I've got to include a, a helper. And think about all of that in comparison to the timeline. Right. And in comparison to his ability or their ability to plan. You can't abduct somebody on the bike. Not at all. Especially a pregnant woman. Right. And now it is more probable that if someone would have walked upon them and Todd would have been concerned because he was a three strike felon and he needed to keep that person quiet, he more than likely would have killed the person there. Right. Through some act of violence, a gun, a knife, whatever, and left the person there there would have been a higher probability chance of him getting away with the crime if he had done that. Right. Abducting Lacey, a pregnant woman, putting him in a, in a white sedan, and then driving to some unknown location where they've cracked open the safe requires not only him to, to keep that as a secret, but also Pierce, who he just, yeah. And then the, the lady who had the jewelry. So now you have three people who have all come forward in some kind of way that we know for a fact, would have said something. Right. And Mackenzie, I'm sure, would have gone crazy. If she indeed was walking Mackenzie, like the story goes, then Mackenzie wouldn't have just been like, oh, bye, you've been abducted, you know? Also keep in mind that all of this would have happened between 1008 and 1018. Right. They would have had to have been lightning fast. Very, very fast. Now, it's true. As soon as the Medina's left, he could have gained access to the house. That's a possibility. That is a scenario that could play out. And he could have positioned the safe and he could have came back just to pick up the safe. But it's an 800-pound safe that two people are moving. So it's not like an easy thing to do. And when he put the safe in the front seat of the car, which means he was in the back seat. Where was Lacey? And this happens in broad daylight on the street where people are seeing things all the time, but nobody sees this happen. It's more probable that it didn't happen on the 24th. It's more probable that he showed up at 3 a.m. of the morning of the 26th. And also keep in mind, this is a meth addict who's being questioned of a crime that committed two weeks after the fact, trying to think back to the day that he committed a crime. Right. So it's understandable that he's going to say, oh, it was the 27th. Well, it couldn't have been because they were already home by that day. And the other thing, too, is that they passed a lie detector test as well. Yes, they did. The phone call in prison is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. No one admits to talking to Todd. No one admits to hearing it from Todd that he had some type of interaction with Lacey. And even... In the phone call, it says he made a, a threat to her. It doesn't say he kidnapped her. It doesn't say he killed her. It doesn't say he abducted her. It says he made a threat to her. So even if that was the case, it doesn't show any evidence 
of foul play. Right. It is 100% hearsay, and it's really a, a dead end. And what I kind of find shocking, and this is a little bit disturbing, that the people who say Scott Peterson is innocent, a lot of times they'll say, well, the detectives didn't investigate. Well, guess what? A detective went to the prison and met with the lieutenant who made the comment and then spoke to the guy who supposedly made the comment and said, hey, did you ever say this? No, I never said that. I don't even know Todd. The fact that the police caught the guys that they, they say, oh, the police never investigated the burglary. If the police didn't investigate, do you think Todd just went and turned himself in and said, hey, I'm the guy who burglarized the house across the street from the where the lady was missing? I don't think so. I think they investigated it and they caught his ass. Somebody came forth and somebody snitched like they always do. In most crimes, people are talking, right. especially crimes involving meth addicts. Yeah, it's pretty easy to get those guys to snitch. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Because their motives is all driven by their need for drugs. The people who think that Scott is innocent, what they want you to believe is that these guys are complex, like life criminals with codes, that they're very sophisticated, and they have this resource and this, this organization that is moving in the shadows. And the reality of it is, it's a couple dope fiends that are just trying to chase the next high. And who would have loved at any point in time to have been able to come forward and claim the reward money that was being offered? Half a million dollars. Right. The lady who took the jewelry and threw it into the police department, if she would have known anything about Lacey, she'd be half a million dollars richer. Because she wasn't even arrested. Yeah, 100%. She wasn't even arrested. I would say the chances of the burglars having anything to do with Lacey's disappearance to be less than 1%. Less than 1%. In order for those guys to actually have had anything to do with it, the timing would have had to be precise. In 10 minutes, they would have had to load the safe into the car, thrown Lacey in there, from, kept her from screaming, fought off her dog, who Scott said was very protective of Lacey. They would have had to drive away with no one seeing her in the car. I wonder why the defense never acted all of that out. Why do you think the defense never brought Todd forth as some type of a witness? The defense didn't bring Todd. Because it made no sense. The defense didn't bring Pierce. Right. The defense didn't even bring the lady who threw the jewelry. They know who she was. They didn't bring her forward to talk about it. So the defense's job at a certain point became trying to plant seeds of doubt right. against the prosecution, as opposed to trying to prove that he was innocent. Their game plan shifted. Right. And one thing that's really important to understand is that Gregos came into this with a strategy. And he was very confident on day one. He said, I'm going to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he is stone cold innocent. And he was basing that based off of thinking that he had an hour to an hour and a half of time to paint the picture of Lacey going missing some other way. And he said, I'm going to bring forth evidence that shows that multiple people saw Lacey alive after Scott left. And you know what's funny? is he almost could have maybe wiggled in a little bit of time if he wouldn't have fought over the meringue cookies yeah. in the Martha Stewart show. The video which he played three times. Because that narrowed their timeline. Right. So the defense is the one who narrowed the window of time down to 10 minutes. 
they did that. Yeah. Prior to that, they were going off of 9.30 being the time frame, which would have gave Lacey a lot more time. And actually, if 9.30 was the time, then those eyewitnesses that said that they saw Lacey would have been more realistic, more believable. Right. More likely. And something tells me that based on that timeline, which probably wasn't smart, but that based on that timeline is why when the prosecution listened to the Martha Stewart episode that they didn't go that far was because they were trying to see if that was mentioned within the time frame that right. that was given by Scott and it wasn't. Another theory that was presented by the defense and was brought to Gregos attention by Lee Peterson was the theory of a satanic cult abducting Lacey and sacrificing her and baby Connor. In the book Presumed Guilty, author and investigative attorney Matt Dalton claims to have been investigating the satanic cult connection to Lacey's disappearance in early 2003. He refers to the December 24th as a satanic holy day known as the High Grand Climax, which calls for a sacrifice. This theory was highly speculative, and there was never any evidence that connected any satanic activity to Lacey's disappearance. Former Congressman William E. Dannenmeyer sent a letter to the California Attorney General and other officials arguing that Lacey Peterson had been killed by members of a satanic cult, not by Peterson. Now, again, the, the organ removal is definitely an issue, and we'll have to get back to that, but... People really love to scoff at the satanic angle because it seems like almost every high-profile case or even some low-profile case, it, it gets blamed on Satanists or the occult a lot. Now, here's the thing. they are We know that Satanists are responsible for a certain percentage. Now, maybe it's point zero 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 one of all murders or whatever, but we know it's there. So to just appeal to incredulity, which is, of course, a logical fallacy, instead of logically, objectively, and neutrally examining the possibility, I mean, we have more evidence of that here than other cases. Again, the organ removal, the lack of solid evidence against Scott Peterson. It's it's rough. It's rough. I mean, we have a former congressman now, again, without going down these Illuminati rabbit holes, how many congressmen and senators know what's up? as far as the occult, satanic worship, and all these things that go behind, go on behind the scenes, human trafficking, all these things that, again, in 2020, in hindsight, we have a lot more information now than in years prior. So, again, in 2006, when this came out, there were a lot more cognitive dissonant coincidence theorists than today. So that might have seemed a lot more ridiculous than it does today. Today, it definitely seems a lot less ridiculous. I mean, still, <laughs> I mean, we're talking outside chances. But out of all the cases, to say that this isn't the one without honest investigation, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. A 1992 FBI report that investigated over 12,000 allegations of illegal activity by satanic groups in the U.S. concluded that there was no evidence of satanic cults operating in the country. Similar large-scale studies by Great Britain and the Netherlands came to the same conclusion. 
This was more fear-mongering and misdirection by the defense team than it was actually evidence-based conclusions. Dalton goes further, attempting to connect a series of missing pregnant women with this satanic cult theory. These women included Dina Raleigh McCluskey, who disappeared from Modesto on October 10th, 1999, a 36-year-old who we now know was murdered by her friend and roommate, Russell Todd Jones. Her remains were recovered where he told police he had buried her. So obviously that didn't make any sense. Michelle Chan, who was 31 when she disappeared from Fremont, California in October, 1999, she has not been located and is still missing. Alice Sin, who was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance and pregnant with her boyfriend's second child, disappeared in January 2000 from Pinhole, West Sacramento. Her body was later recovered, riddled with bullets in the Nevada desert. Her boyfriend became the prime suspect when it was discovered that he had just gotten a $2 million life insurance policy a month before her disappearance. Angelina Joy Evans was 26 years old and pregnant with her sixth child when she was last seen May 21st, 2001, getting into a primered black pickup truck. She was running with a rough crowd. Shortly after her disappearance, a baby was found abandoned and they speculated that that was her baby, but she was never found. Evelyn Hernandez, who was 24 years old when she went missing, along with her five-year-old son, and whose body was also found in the San Francisco Bay, with both legs, both arms, and her head missing, was the mistress of Herman Aguilera and was nine months pregnant with his baby. His wife was aware of the mistress, but not aware of the pregnancy. He was never a prime suspect, and her killer was never found. Rebecca Rachel Miller went missing October 15th, 2002. She was homeless at the time of her disappearance. She was a drug addict and was last seen rummaging around in a dumpster in Modesto when she went missing. Her body has never been recovered. As it turns out, it is highly unlikely that the disappearance of these women are in any way related to each other, let alone related to a satanic cult. The leading cause of death of pregnant women tends to be homicide, with 55% of those women being murdered while they are still pregnant. Death of pregnant women has increased 35% in 2022. More times than not, the perpetrator is the woman's husband, boyfriend, or lover. The satanic cult theory is a ridiculous theory. Again, it's a stretch. It's a it's a shot in the dark. <laughs> it's such a stretch. And you would think that if there was any type of credible evidence leading to satanic ritual killings, that by now, evidence of, of any of that would have come forward. Right. And I think they tried to the tie the fact that she was missing her legs, she was missing her arms, she was missing her head, and they tied that to other people. There was even another murder that, that happened in, I, think I want to say it was in Reno, Nevada, LaDonna Milam. LaDonna Milam was found dumped into a pond, and the person who had killed her 
had chopped her into pieces and they found her legs and her arms separate from her torso. And Dalton says, this is another killing that could have been satanic in nature. And the guy who was caught was schizophrenic and had mental problems. Where is Dalton today? I'm just curious. I don't know. I don't even know why Gregos hired this clown. And the reason why I say that is because he was failing as a prosecutor for the Los Angeles. Uh, he was fired. <laughs> I I can see why. And then Gregos hires him and then Gregos uh, fires him too. And all he talks about in his book is how he's chasing the satanic thread. And he's really associating people with Satanism who aren't really satanic in nature. He calls out one guy who has a 666 tattoo on his forehead. And he's like, this guy's got to be satanic, right? Well, not really. There's a lot of people who use 666 just to denote their atheism or their lack of connection to any really religion. It doesn't really make you satanic. Satanism being that it's a religion that you subscribe to. You subscribe to being a Satanist and you practice Satanism. And you know, one thing that if they were trying to go in that direction, if they wanted to try to use that theory and wanted to be serious about that theory is that he could have had somebody come in and speak who that was their thing. And, you know, somebody who was very knowledgeable on that topic and who could have come in and talked about the different things that they practice as part of that group. And that could have been helpful. And I'm sure, you know, I kind of feel like their theories, and as we go through them all, you'll see more of this, but I kind of feel like it was a situation where the defense sat around the table and strategized with how can we poke holes in the prosecution's case or how can we show some type of vulnerability in their case if we can't poke holes in it? And I feel like this is where all of this kind of stemmed from. There's no evidence to tie any type of satanic cult to anything having to do with Lacey. The Brown Van Theory has many intersecting parts as it becomes a factor on the night of December 23rd when self-proclaimed neighborhood watchman Simon decides to patrol the neighborhood in his car and begins tailing what he deems to be suspicious vehicles. He first notes a brown van being followed by two cars winding through the neighborhood. They appeared to be casing the neighborhood where Lacey and Scott lived. As Simon followed the vehicles, they came to a stop and he's forced to speed past them as they try to engage him. For some reason, he doesn't get a license plate number. The brown van is later brought up during a sexual assault counseling session between a victim advocate and a victim who claims she was pulled into a brown van by someone she knew and sexually assaulted by four people. She claims that the group are satanic devil worshippers who had threatened to carry out a Christmas Eve murder that she will read about it in the news. The victim advocate reports this to Modesto detectives. The detectives search, they locate, and they impound the van. And it would turn out that the vehicle in question belonged to a family of four, a husband, a wife, and their two adult children, all meth addicts who lived out of their brown van. The van would be processed for evidence by the police, and what appeared to be blood stains would be tested and the blood coming back as animal blood. There would be no evidence of Lacey or Connor in the van. There would be nothing connecting the family to Lacey and no evidence that the van was the same vehicle that was seen on December 23rd by the do-gooder Simon or by Diane Jackson on December 24th at 1140. 
In the end, the brown van becomes a dead end, with nothing placing it in the vicinity of the Peterson home around the time that Lacey would have gone missing. Again, a 10-minute window. They're trying to plant some seeds of doubt in people's minds. And that's a strategy. But as we're going through these theories, I want you to take into account the fact that as a family member, I don't know any family member who has lost someone to murder who is okay with the wrong person going to prison. True. They're not like, hey, let's hurry up and close this case and be done with it. They want the right person to be sent away. They want justice. Right. So they're not like, hey, well, whoever the first person is that you find, let's go ahead and find any way we can to convict them and then move on. So you're talking about somebody who was a part of the Rocha family for a while. So it wasn't an easy thing for them to just wash their hands of Scott and say, all right, guys, he's definitely guilty. There was a lead up and there was a lot of lead up. So it wasn't just, you know, hey, we think he's the guy. He must be the guy. You guys are gunning for him. So we're going to gun for him. It didn't play out that way. You're 100% spot on. No one wants to send the wrong person to jail. No one wants to send the wrong person to death, bro. And the defense and the people that believe Scott is innocent will say, well, the detectives didn't investigate. How? They they followed every single lead. They even found the brown van. They tested it. They even found the family who were questioned as to why they were in the van and what they were doing. Nothing ever materialized that tied that person to Lacey or Connor. You're talking about a community that was up in arms for Lacey, someone would have said something if they knew something. Someone would have spoken. Someone would have cracked. It's very unlikely that the whole entire community of these meth addicts that were involved in in all these rabbit holes, that they would have kept this code of silence. The next theory is the multiple sightings of Lacey. Six witnesses reported seeing Lacey Peterson alive walking her dog around the block the morning of December 24th, all documented in the Dasto police reports. Why weren't those six witnesses presented to the jury? The police interviewed all these people and they just dismissed them. believe that Lacey was alive on the morning of December 24th. There were over 14 witnesses who reported seeing Lacey and or McKenzie walking in the neighborhood. 14 witnesses that said, I saw Lacey Peterson that morning and or McKenzie the dog. They are tips that were called into the tip line. Uh, Some of them aren't specific saying they saw Lacey, but they're saying they saw a pregnant woman. Well, that's different than what you said. You said you had 14 witnesses that saw Lacey that morning, and that's not true. Okay, you have 14... The problem is they weren't ever interviewed properly to determine whether or not they had seen Lacey. That is not a matter of record. There are 14 witnesses that said they saw what they thought was maybe a pregnant woman or an overweight woman walking with a large dog. Mm -hmm. 
a golden retriever. That's a long way from saying, I saw Lacey Peterson with Mackenzie the dog. One of Gorego's claims was that Lacey was seen by multiple eyewitnesses on the morning of December 24th. Gorego's framed his entire defense on these witnesses, who were independent, trustworthy sources. Unfortunately, what he had not counted on was the time hack of 9.48 a.m. to 10.08 a.m. That had Scott Peterson at home and barely leaving to head to his warehouse to pick up his boat. If you recall, he and Lacey were watching Martha Stewart at 9.48 a.m. and his cell phone pinged in the neighborhood at 10.08 a.m. as he checked his voicemail messages from his boss wishing him a Merry Christmas. Homer and Helen Maldonado first thought they saw Lacey at 9.50 a.m. to 10 a.m. near the corner of Miller and West Covina. This is a half mile away from the Peterson home. Tony Friedis then reported seeing Lacey on La Loma Avenue as he was completing a delivery to the Denny's, which was his normal route. He claimed to see Lacey between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. This is 0.65 miles away from Lacey's home and in the opposite direction of where she normally walks. This is more likely closer to 10 a.m. than to the 9 a.m. since it's close to Homer and Helen's sighting of Lacey. Martha Aguilar sees her on La Loma Avenue between 9.45 a.m. and 10 a.m. This is a mile away from Lacey's home and half a mile away from where Homer and Helen saw her at the same time. Vivian Mitchell sees Lacey on La Sombra around 10.30 a.m., which would align with the sightings and time of Homer and Helen. Diana Campos sees Lacey near Moose Park, one and a half miles from the home along the path of sightings. She would have been half a mile away from the home given a straight shot. Based on the sightings, it is highly probable whomever they saw was first sighted by Homer and Helen around 9.50 a.m. and then by Tony Friedis around 10 a.m. She was then seen by Martha Aguilera on La Loma around 10.15 a.m., which was about 15 minutes past when she thought she saw her to make Vivian's location at 10.30 a.m. This means she was most likely at Moose Park by 10.45 a.m. And if it had been Lacey, then she would have arrived back home around 11 a.m. The problem is that Lacey was having difficulty with exercise and had been getting dizzy spells and was told by the doctor to avoid walking. And if she was going to walk, that she should walk in the afternoons to ensure that she was properly hydrated. Also, this was not a normal route for Lacey and was not in the direction of the park where she normally walked. It was in the complete opposite direction. Finally, this would have been a very brisk walk for Lacey, who the day prior was struggling to walk in Trader Joe's where she had to be helped. When you compare it to the timeline, we find that Karen's service placed McKenzie in the backyard at 10.18 a.m., but witnesses see a pregnant lady at 10.30 a.m. and 10.45 a.m., still walking a golden Labrador retriever that could not have been McKenzie at all. Ultimately, Gregos could not bring any of these witnesses to testify because the timeline did not support their testimony. There's been a lot of criticism because we didn't call some witnesses who saw Lacey that day. Scott Peterson's attorney, Pat Harris, the original thought process at the time was a number of the witnesses who saw her 
didn't have great uh, memories or had contra or contradicted each other. Police detective John Bueller says none of the witnesses were actually sure if they did in fact see Lacey. This is why no one ever came forward to the defense and testified on Scott's behalf that they saw Lacey. It was not supported by the timeline. Right. Now, before the timeline got screwed up by the Martha Stewart episode, Gregos probably had a good timeline. Also, they weren't sure about the time when Karen Service put the dog in the backyard because originally she said it was 1030. That probably would have aligned. But she was very calculated in how she came up with that 1018 time frame. And it was very measured out and it was very specific. It was validated. And so we know from the phone ping from Peterson leaving the neighborhood that there was only a 10 minute window. There is no way she could have ran two miles in 10 minutes pregnant with a yeah. dog. I was pretty young, actually, when this case came out. And I remember first hearing about this pregnant woman going missing. And I remember thinking, man, that's so sad. She's getting ready to deliver. And then hearing that it could possibly be her husband. And when he was convicted, I just remember thinking, you know, and at that point, I actually think I had just went into the military. I just remember thinking how sad it was, how the case played out. And years later, getting back into the case after seeing bits and pieces being younger and kind of going through that whole thing, it's crazy to come in and start fresh from the beginning and look at all the evidence, all the court transcripts and all the photos and not just take what you're being told online or watching a program that's put out there to make money. I mean, that's what it's put out there for. So, you know, there's things that they leave out. There's things that they add in that are for your entertainment purposes. And so being able to crack open this case and look at it with a fresh set of eyes from beginning to end and looking at the evidence and the things in black and white, it just tells a completely different story. And yeah. I encourage anybody who feels like they're on the fence either way, that if you haven't done that, do it. And there are sites on Facebook that are for Scott Peterson being guilty and for Scott Peterson being innocent. I encourage you to look at them both. And then I encourage you to compare the evidence. And I want you to pay attention to what's omitted and what's included. Because what you'll find is that there's some omissions and it's intentionally omitted and why. Somebody is trying to pull the wool over your eyes and you shouldn't allow it. I saw it as well in reading the book Presumed Guilty by Dalton in that he seriously downplays the evidence against Scott in order to align with his theory of something else having happened. And he'll say things like, oh, he only spent $5 on a bag of concrete. Well, that was a 90-pound bag of concrete. To use a $5 as a threshold to put on that bag of concrete is downplaying the value of how much concrete was in that bag, how many anchors he made. You're basically trying to say, well, the anchors is not an issue. It is only $5 worth of concrete. 
Yeah. Right. It was 90 pounds worth of concrete. And they came up with a number too. Supposedly he made four, he made five. Maybe he made two. Maybe he made three. He didn't need to make four or five. And the concrete that they found dumped in the driveway wasn't 90 pounds worth of concrete. No, it wasn't. And here's the other thing. They'll say, well, all these people saw Lacey. Okay. But you don't also say, well, how does that align with the timeline? And ignore, how come we didn't bring them in? <laughs> yeah, you ignore the timeline. You completely ignore the timeline and just go, well, these people said they saw her. So it's obviously not Scott. If these people did see her, how does that fit into the timeline? And there is somebody that was brought in as a witness that they spoke to, and it was the spouse of a pregnant woman who was about as far along as Lacey. And she also had gone walking that day on her own. Typically they walk together. And so when they're questioning him, Gregos is trying to have everything thrown out that he's saying, but it doesn't jive with the defense's strategy. And so he didn't want that whole testimony to be heard just because it made their case weak. Those kind of things just continued to play out that way. And a couple of things that I just kind of wanted to bring up before we go a little bit further is one of the things that's come up quite frequently is the boat and about how the defense went and did a little experiment where they tried to throw something off the boat and how the boat kept capsizing. They had nothing in the boat when they did that. And so in order for you to replicate something, it needs to be exact. The boat needs to be the same. And so the judge offered for the defense to reenact that with Scott's boat. And guess what? They chose not to. So, and there's a reason for that, guys. And there's evidence of that. You can look that up. There's evidence of that. So when somebody's trying to convince you to swing one way or another, I just encourage you to trust but verify if you yeah. choose to trust. If you believe Scott is innocent, in your heart of hearts, if you truly believe Scott is innocent, then whatever evidence that you're relying on to make the determination, whatever proof or whatever concrete concept that you're using to base your belief on, it should be able to make sense right. with the timeline, with the people that were involved. And you should really look at that and see if that makes sense to you. And if it does, then stand on what you believe. Right. But if it doesn't, it's idiotic to continue to say, well, he's innocent. There's another little nugget that I'm going to throw out there that I've actually not heard mentioned anywhere. I was a little bit reluctant to mention this, but I'm going to. And that's that when we started digging into this case, we dig pretty deep. The very first thing that we do before we review any podcast or any blogs or anything of that nature is we look at the evidence and we look at what's in black and white because that's really the meat of everything. That's your foundation of the story, your, the real story, in order for you to be unbiased. So we do that. And part of us doing that is also looking at the people who have been instrumental in the case and how they play into that and people who are advocating for the case. And so something interesting that came up is that the Peterson family did a little bit of asset protection. And it's interesting the timing of the asset protection because they were doing it at times where they would have been concerned that if they were sued civilly, 
their assets could be at risk. And so they have taken measures to protect their assets. And don't get me wrong, when you're a business owner and you have a good, say, tax attorney or business attorney who advises you, one of the conversations that they will have with you is about asset protection. So it wouldn't be surprising for an attorney to have that conversation with them and say, hey, these are some of the things that we recommend for your structure and to protect your assets. But they've gone a little bit above and beyond in that arena. One thing that was unique with this case was the amount of media coverage this case garnered. The nation was enthralled with the case from the beginning and reporters jumped at every morsel of potential news, all fighting to be the first to break something new. Unfortunately, this often resulted in erroneous information being presented that often painted Scott Peterson in a negative light. Ironically, Scott was doing enough of his own damage that the additional media attention almost instantly painted Scott as a villain. One thing was certain. The more Scott avoided the cameras, the more the demand for Scott grew, having an opposite effect of what he most likely desired. Is it possible that the jury was tainted by negative media attention? Although it's a possibility, it is highly unlikely that 12 jurors, individuals who had not known each other prior to being selected to be on the jury, could have colluded to frame an innocent man for a crime he didn't commit. With the evidence weighed and the lack of a solid defense, it is reasonable to assume that the jury made their decision with good conscience and in the spirit of the law. After all, two jurors were removed for breaking the rules, one for talking about the case when he wasn't supposed to and the other for doing independent research. It is more likely that the jurors had a high bar for administering justice, especially since it was a capital case and none of the jurors wanted to send an innocent man to death. Many of the jurors today still suffer from some version of post-traumatic stress disorder related to the case. And in terms of the media, I will say this. I heard about the case, but I was deployed to Iraq when this case was going on. I was actually stationed in Germany, and then I deployed to Iraq. Over the years, I never really paid attention to it. So I'm a virgin when it comes to Scott Peterson and the exposure. And right. you were talking a little while ago of coming into this brand new. I came into this brand new. I didn't know whether he was guilty or not. And 100% we began looking at the evidence. And the evidence, if you follow the evidence, it leads you to the outcome that is most likely. Now, without a murder weapon, without a crime scene, without a smoking gun, is there opportunity for interpretation in what happened and what could have happened? Obviously there is, because you still have people who say he's innocent. Although all the evidence points to him being 100% guilty. What's your thoughts on the media? It's to be expected that the media is going to come in and they're going to cover the case and they're going to do what they do for ratings and people are going to try to be first and they're going to try to break the news first and some people are going to get it right and some people are going to get it wrong. And you have that with every case. And so I don't think that the media intentionally came in to run Scott Peterson over. You know, I think initially, like most people, 
you're going to feel bad for the guy because you're like, man, his wife's missing. His pregnant wife's missing. This was his first child. They've only been married for so long. Um, They're young. You feel bad for him. And then as evidence starts coming out and as the media starts seeing all these different things and they start seeing the way that he's responding, they're interpreting things as well. So I don't think that the media came in and tried to crucify Scott Peterson. They were getting their cues from him. Those were the cues that he was giving. Those were the cues that his family was giving. So I don't think that they came in and tried to railroad him or that they were the reason that he was found guilty. When there's smoke, there's likely a fire. Right. And logically, those are dots that you can connect. For the people who are on the fence, there is a sense for them of, is it the right guy? Until they have the evidence that they feel that they need to say, this is him. Because he isn't coming out and admitting it. And because he's got people who are supporting him, they're thinking, man, I don't, I don't want to put the wrong guy to death. I don't want the wrong guy to be sitting in prison all his life and he's innocent. There's a guilt factor there. And so you're a victim of his. Just like the people who are supporting him, you know, they're a victim of his. His family who's supporting him, if they honestly believe him, they're a victim of his. The jury who had to sit through seeing photos and hearing phone calls and going through that torment and listening to Lacey's mom and seeing what her body looked like when she washed ashore, they are victims of his. So his only victims weren't Lacey and Connor. His victims were all the people who experienced some type of trauma from what they had to be exposed to. I've liked true crime since I was a little girl. I've liked cold cases and solving things since I was a little girl. But I also have been on the, on the receiving end. And I also have experienced the family who is re-traumatized when things come out, when they see that picture that, that they didn't think everybody was going to see, when they see that an autopsy was shared of their family member that they didn't think everybody was going to see. And when they hear a new case and it makes them sick because this was somebody else who was victimized. So I just want for you guys to think about that when you listen to these cases and remember that there are people on the other side of this always, on both sides, who are experiencing pain and trauma and trying to manage it and trying to deal with it. And, you know, I want you to take a moment and put yourself in their position, whichever side it is. And just remember that when you guys listen to these cases and when you guys remark on these cases and and when you're looking at evidence and you're looking at, you know, don't blindly believe everybody. Do some fact checking. I think that you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the people that are involved in these cases. I know with the Menendez brothers, that was a case that I was familiar with when I was younger. And I always thought the brothers were guilty without a shadow of a doubt. And I thought they should be in prison for life. And when we covered that case and we have actually read through the transcripts and saw the evidence and, and understood the trauma that they had been through, I didn't know anything about Jose and Kitty and who they were as people. And as I learned that, my opinion of that case changed. Right. Because I did my own research. But before that, I was blindly following the crowd. So I say that to say, 
Don't blindly follow the crowd. Do your due diligence. Look at the evidence yourself. Look for receipts. It's always easy to sit on the sidelines and critique. If you're sitting at a football game and you're not a football player and you know, you're not doing all the training that they're doing and you're not doing, you know, you're not out there playing the game, but you sit on the sidelines and you critique them. We do that with detectives. We do that with families. We do that with suspects and their families. And I just want you to take a few moments to just think about the fact that you're not working in the same capacity. And I'm going to tell you, after having deep dived this case, like we have, I would hope that something happened to my family member that I would be blessed enough to have detectives like Lacey and Connor had because they did a phenomenal job and yeah they made some mistakes and I think it's natural that there's some mistakes that are made but we've covered cases where the detectives have completely just just a despicable job and I'm going to tell you that these guys did a phenomenal job And it's something worth recognizing because they've really gotten a lot of flack and they did a really good job. There are still many people who believe that Scott Peterson is an innocent man behind bars. Janie Peterson, Scott's sister-in-law, has built a legal career behind advocating for Scott's innocence. It is unfathomable that someone you know could be guilty of such a horrific crime. It is a difficult thing to wrap your head around. Scott's parents couldn't fathom their child being a murderer. What parent can? Unfortunately, without a mountain of physical evidence, many naysayers and those who support Scott choose to ignore a mountain of circumstantial evidence and plant their flag on one or more of the alternate theories we've discussed today. Some will say it's the bumbling burglars who tripped and stumbled their way straight into jail who committed this heinous crime. Having the ability to conduct a complex setup, framing Scott by depositing Lacey's remains in the San Francisco Bay before being arrested. Others will say it was a devious and highly motivated satanic cult focused on ritual killings, driving around in a brown van, abducting pregnant women throughout the Bay Area, and sacrificing them in the name of the devil. Although no evidence of satanic ritualistic killings had been brought to light, even many years later. Some pundits will claim that tons of witnesses saw Lacey the morning she disappeared, long after Scott left on his fishing trip, ignoring the documented and verified timeline that stupefied Gregos' defense and left him looking like an amateur in the courtroom as he went from claiming that he'd proved Scott was stone-cold innocent to trying to play on the emotions of the jury and their dislike for Scott who showed no emotions throughout the trial. He would shout, do you hate him? The answer was a resounding yes. America did hate Scott Peterson, but it's not why he was found guilty or why he was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Thank you for immersing yourself in this episode and going on the journey with us. As we part, remember that in the realm of true crime, the line between clarity and obscurity is ever shifting, always moving. Keep your minds sharp and your hearts open and let's reconvene soon to once again dance on the edges of the unfathomable. Until then, tread the path of mystery with both caution and wonder. 
And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.